0: This episode contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Somerville, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey. This month, we're talking with Dr. Hanna Leibovitz about how to recognize different kinds of anti-Semitism. And for our second segment, we're talking about our perfect summer Shabbat. Zahava, do you want to kick things off? Sure. Sure.
0: For our first segment, we are joined by Dr. Hanna Leibovitz, Assistant Professor of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Arlington, to talk about antisemitism and discrimination, and perhaps even to say to talk about how to talk about antisemitism and discrimination. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. So we originally reached out because as part of your formidable Twitter presence, you had a thread about the different kinds of antisemitism that we are seeing and not seeing in the United States these days and how the discourse about that is not meeting the moment, potentially. Um, So we would love, first of all, for you to run through that taxonomy for us. Talk a little bit about what those kinds of anti-Semitism are and aren't.
2: Sure. So just a bit of background, um, you know, in terms of my framing and where I come from this. So I have a Ph.D. in urban affairs and uh, public policy. And so that means that I'm really interested in everything related to how people experience their everyday lives, the way they interact with space, the way they interact socially and how we use government, especially local government, but everything really trickles down to local to shape that and to reshape that and to tell people what they should value or not value or to push people in certain directions. Um, My dissertation research and a lot of my research that's followed after that looked specifically at what's called social sustainability. So how do we ensure that the way that people live is sustainable for the long term? And so that's what I think about a lot. I think about how people live and and I think about that time variable very often. Uh, It's something that we don't think about. We think so often about what's happening right now and what we need right now. But I think much more about the long term and not just thinking about what's happening in this space and with these people, but over time. So we call it spatiality. That's the space, right? Temporality. Time and sociality, who you're with. That's the way I think about everything um, space, time, people. And so when I was thinking about anti Semitism and a lot of the conversations that have been happening right now, what I kept seeing was this language around anti Semitism as something that wasn't being defined, uh, not just as, you know, what is anti Semitism, but how does it occur in what spaces, over what time, with which people. And When we think about that, we can actually begin to have more nuanced conversations about anti-Semitism. So, for example, I live in Dallas, Texas, and my husband is openly Jewish. I am openly Jewish. We send our children to an openly Jewish school over, you know, the three, four weeks of the most recent, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict. Our lives didn't change at all. Nobody accosted us at all. We walked a mile and a half to Shul and back through a lot of different neighborhoods and nobody said anything to us. Um, broadly here, a lot of people did not experience any real discrimination. Around a particular rally, there were certain, you know, around that day, there were some things that went on. But broadly, our lives didn't really change. But we heard narratives from other places that made us scared or that made us worry or that made us think that maybe we were under attack potentially but it wasn't actually happening where we were. The other question is over time, right? It was only during one kind of three, four week period that everything felt really heated. The last time that this felt heated were, you know, other previous times several months ago. Again, where? Mostly in New York. Um, So, you know, we have all of these questions about where it's happening, how it's happening, when it's happening. I'm actually from Pittsburgh originally, so the Pittsburgh massacre was a big deal to me. Um, But then, if you look at that social aspect, I come from a more right-wing Jewish community, and it wasn't a big deal to a lot of those folks because it didn't happen in one of their synagogues. So, there are all of these different ways of understanding what's going on and how we feel about things. And every single time that anti-Semitism just means I'm a Jew and I personally didn't feel comfortable in this situation, we lose that nuance and we can't have a really good like, you know, understanding of what's happening. So one of the ways that I try to break down that is by using this like three-tier taxonomy called micro, miso, and macro. And the idea of micro is that that is the human to human interpersonal level. That's where something happens to you very specifically because of how you're dressed, and it occurs, or you know, or how you present, and it occurs because another person introduces themselves into your space, right at that exact moment, and engages in some social interaction with you. And that's a lot of the anti-Semitism that we are seeing nowadays, right? Is that micro level anti-Semitism, and it is getting worse. It is getting more heightened, and. A A lot of our Jewish institutions are being conflated with Israeli institutions or or political stances. That is really happening and that is very real. But when we talk about that, we can't equate it necessarily to miso-level antisemitism, which I'm going to explain in a second, or macro-level antisemitism, which I think is even worse. So miso-level antisemitism, the miso-level is what we think of as the community or organization level. It's these sort of groups of individuals that create something more than just a micro-experience, but but they have a certain level of control and legitimacy in their processes. So an institution or miso-level discrimination would be like bank discrimination. So if you you look at data across, um, you know, what we call Humda data, housing mortgage data, we can see very often that there's still a lot of discrimination in who gets a mortgage. So if you look at everything as equal, you'll still see that race very often is a determinant as to who gets a mortgage. So a white person, a black person, they're all, they're living in two houses. They want to buy two houses right next to each other for the same price, the same credit, all of that stuff. If you pretty much hold that equal, the white person is still more likely to get a loan than the black person. Now that's not a micro level discrimination because it's not that a loan officer is looking at this person and saying, this person is black. I don't want to give that loan to them. There's something within the system of banking that flags certain things or that produces these results in which it's more likely that black folks are not going to get loans. And so that's that level where I really can't say for certain that Jews experience anti-Semitism there. I don't think we can because the way that you experience anti-Semitism at the Misa level is by having to like perform as Jewish in some way. And we don't really have that. You don't have to check off the box that says you're Jewish if you go to apply for a loan. Um, You don't have to, there isn't really much in which you present yourself as Jewish institutionally that would create that. Um, There, there is a question of whether, singular institutions might behave in a discriminate way, but the extent to which that spreads out across institutions is not the same. So if you're, you know, applying for a job and in that job, they don't want to hire you because you're Jewish, that's still a micro level interaction because that's the hiring manager. You know, nowhere in a system have you said you're Jewish and somehow they flagged it, right? It's a hiring manager or you have a bad interview or somebody sees you and you're wearing a kippah and they don't want you there, right? That's still a micro level anti-Semitism, it doesn't yet go to that level where institutionally there's no law firm that will hire a Jew or, you know, or things like that, 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 that's not built into the institutional system. And that's a level of discrimination that does still very much exist for people who are, you know, who are black, um, who are of, you know, Latinx ethnicity, um, that does still happen because they have to check that box. They present as a, a, a highly discriminated body in very different ways in which they can be flagged and they can be within that system can discriminate it. The other level is what's called macro level. And there's a lot of conversation that's happened around, you know, things like critical race theory and a lot of these other broader theories and those are macro level theories. And what that means are, are macro level ideas. And what that means is that they're going beyond individual human autonomy or agency to see these larger collective framings and interconnections between different ways that we understand the world and think about the world and assumptions we have and values. You know, these large macro level things that we can't just change by saying you're going to get arrested if you assault this person because they're Jewish, right? Like there's these are much larger macro level issues. And I think we can also say that macro level antisemitism has increased very much. So the conspiracy theories that people are believing about Jews, what we saw in Charlottesville, what we've seen over the last five years um, is macro level antisemitism bursting out all of these ideas about Jews and who they are and what they're going to do and how wealthy they are and this and that, that's very, very common. And that's trickling down into micro-level interactions. People are believing these macro-level views. They're they're creating insular networks of information networks where they keep sharing these macro-level views. And then that's playing out at the micro-level. But it's not in the MISA level. And I think that's really important when we talk about discrimination against Jews. And when we try to find allies in other communities, we need to recognize that we're not necessarily experiencing experiencing the same discrimination. Um, and that, for me, is a big push because a lot of my research revolves around neighborhood equity and justice. And when I look at a neighborhood that's been entirely disinvested, I cannot say it looks like any neighborhood that Jewish people have ever lived in. Um, I just can't. And I know why it was disinvested in. And I know why the second that it became black or brown, nobody wanted to put any capital into it. Nobody wanted to put any jobs there. It was completely, entirely disinvested. That doesn't happen to our neighborhoods. And some of that is political activism, but even your ability to engage in political activism, right, is is built into which system is considered, which which group or which neighborhood or or which identity, um, is considered to be invited to that stage. And so, for me, you know, it's 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 difficult, and I am in more you know leftist circles and progressive circles doing a lot of this work, and I find that pushing back on on you know, some of the macro level anti-Semitism that does occur on both sides and even micro level anti-Semitism. It needs to come with that acknowledgement that we're not experiencing that MISA level anti-Semitism.
3: And in your Twitter thread, you also talk about, you know, the approach of asking institutions to come out and speak out against anti-Semitism in some way fails to recognize that we're not talking about meso level anti-Semitism. And when an institution speaks out, does that even do anything to address either macro or micro-level anti-Semitism? In some ways, it's just performative. Exactly.
2: And I think that one of the things that's happened as we, um, you know, as Jews have continued to be politically active and as we've continued to kind of find our niche and, and, and push a lot of what our, you know, what's considered good for Jews or, you know, defending Jewish interests, we've relied heavily on institutions, not recognizing that that's not really where the fight is. Um, I don't think it's really been there for a long time, especially since the shifts have gone towards requiring minority groups to self-identify within institutions. Um, We as Jews, which are technically, I guess, an ethnic white group, I mean, I mean, referring to white, you know, Ashkenazi Jews, we're we're not really considered within those designated minorities minorities, uh, which is funny to me as a kid, as a kid growing up, you know, you had to take, um, you know, the standardized tests and you have to, you know, you have to give your ethnic, you know, ethnicity or, or racial background. And I remember I didn't know where I fit because I didn't think I was white, but I knew I wasn't black and I knew I wasn't, you know, Hispanic, Latino. Like, I, I didn't know where I would fit until I got older and I realized, oh, I, I'm white in that system. Um and I'm coded as white, and I'm going to get all the privileges of being someone who's coded as white institutionally. But yeah, I think we're looking to our institutions, we're looking to institutional leaders to say something about anti Semitism, to say we don't stand for anti Semitism, but that's not where the anti Semitism is happening. I am somebody who has spent many, many years on college campuses. I think I'm coming up on 10 years, pretty much being on college campuses. And a lot of the claims that I see around anti Semitism on college campuses are just not like the reality. And I speak to other people on college campuses, right? Um, A lot of it is being 18 years old and leaving a bubble for the first time, which is where we all are. Everybody's in their bubbles. Even if you're in a private, if you're in a public rural high school or, you know, you're in a bubble and you leave your bubble for the first time and you come and you get to a place where you have to find yourself and people are going to push up against you. And people are going to say that the way you live isn't the right way. Um, But that's not necessarily anti-Semitic or people are going to throw a lot of their ignorance at you because they're ignorant and you're going to have to figure out what to say to them. You know, if I'm a parent sending a child to a college campus, my concern wouldn't be that they're going to face pushback. My concern would be that they won't know what to do when it happens, right? Like the pushback should be assumed. Uh, That's with every group. I speak to women all the time who experience all kinds of, especially women of color, who've experienced all kinds of sexist, racist, everything on college campuses, right? Like that's just what college, is tense <laughs> and in, in intense right and our and our classrooms are we're, we're speaking to people who to, to people who are finally becoming people right you're no longer a child you don't live in your parents home anymore you're becoming an adult and you're gonna get information that's adult level information um, and that might be difficult and that might be difficult to go back home and to speak to your parents who maybe aren't ready for that um, but it doesn't make college campuses anti-semitic um, especially doesn't make our college admissions processes or retention processes Processes anti-Semitic. And that's also a huge difference. What happens on a college campus in terms of micro interactions is not the same as whether you're going to be admitted to that college. Overwhelmingly, it's highly likely that Jews do not face discrimination in college admissions or retention for numerous reasons, (laughs) like one of which is just the fact that I'm not the first academic who's Jewish, right? (laughs) It's not an uncommon thing for Jews to have gotten tenure at every single major institution, right? So, so, um... Yeah, so I, you know, I think that a lot of this, again, is like experiencing pushback and experiencing tension is not the same as anti-Semitism, um, going to a job and applying for a job and, you know, having these casual just, you know, affronts with somebody doesn't mean your workplace is anti-Semitic. Um, it could mean that somebody who you're working with is anti-Semitic or is ignorant, but it doesn't make the whole institution like that. And that's why I just I don't think institutions are doing much <laughs> in all their statements. It is it's Performative, right? And they have to come out and they have to seem like they're still relevant to our Jewish values or Jewish goals. But I just don't think they are.
1: (laughs) I think it's really interesting that like, if we want equity in this country, a lot of what we need is institutions to change policies around race. But a lot of the conversation about race ends up being about this micro level stuff. Like there's, there's so much people feel I think a lot of um pressure and um and stress around like proving to other people that they're not racist. but like it's still pretty hard to get like racist policies like around mortgages or around like car insurance, credit scores. These are all things that have like huge impacts on people's lives. And it's really hard, actually, to get institutions to change that. and in the in these conversations about anti-Semitism, you find that like, there, there aren't these institutional level things that are holding people back. There are, there are these micro um, moments of anti semitism, and and I think there's this like perception of them as this huge, overwhelming, powerful thing. But it it doesn't have you know it's one of those things where it's like it's it's hard to see because everybody is one person who can only really. Genuinely speak to their own life, and like if you experience some but something that feels like a scary anti-Semitic thing to you, like that is real. Like those feelings that you have are real. It may be very scary, but it isn't the same as like Jewish people are like can't get mortgages because their credits are lower institutionally.
2: I think that's where we have to
1: differentiate between
2: feeling uncomfortable because you've experienced a personal trauma and feeling uncomfortable because you're within a system of oppression. Those are two different things. So you you might not trust your neighbors because one of your neighbors yelled some really horrible anti-Semitic slur at you, but that's a personal trauma. It's another thing to walk into a group of people who don't look like you and to know that within the system of oppression that you're in, you're likely to have a very bad experience there. Um, and so that's where, you know, the, spatiality temporality sociality aspects come in right if you if Jews are in if we're if we're in a lot of different spaces where we're able to openly happily happily be Jewish and not worry about anti-semitism and there are most times in which we're not worried about anti-semitism we're not within a system of oppression but other groups are within a system of oppression in which that constant like stress doesn't go away um, and where that fear and and those experiences don't go away and to your point about micro level and institutional level, I think we see this so often in conversations around environmental sustainability where people think that they need to stop eating meat or they need to stop driving or they need to stop doing certain things that will help save the environment. And they don't realize like there are 10 companies out there that are doing most of the polluting, right? And like if they were to change, it would be much bigger than your personal shift. Even though your personal shift might be meaningful to you and it might be meaningful to your commu- to your small community, but that there are actually these institutional efforts that are are much more significant. And in Jewish conversations, I just don't think that's true. I think it's that micro and that comes with education, and that also comes with being aware of who we support and what macro-level ideas they push, right? And so we have a lot of Jews in Brooklyn who just experienced a lot of antisemitism that was real. It was micro-level antisemitism and it was real. But they also voted for somebody who pushed a lot of macro-level antisemitism, which is very confusing to me personally. It, it is. It's, it's very hard that people don't see those connections and that they see themselves as victims of this, you know, these. These traumatic experiences, but not as supporters of the people who are creating the traumatic experiences.
0: The reason that I really latched on to this notion of, of having a classification to work with is that I often feel like I struggle with... Um, Striking the right balance between not wanting to be dismissive of genuine anti-Semitism, not wanting to be sort of self-abnegating in conversations about discrimination, while at the same time not wanting to seem sort of tone deaf to what's happening around me and what's happening to other groups that experience more systemic forms of oppression. I think that where I think this is sort of difficult to apply, as I think... You know, as sort of a layperson thinking about this, is the interaction between these levels. So, for instance, a hate crimes law is an institutional policy meant to address a micro level form of discrimination. Or, on the other side, there can be a rising trend of micro level discriminatory incidents. That create an atmosphere, sort of a permission structure for people to advance policies that could create a meso level form of discrimination. And so, I'm trying to think about how these things sort, the slippage across these borders, and and how to properly situate an incident in its proper sort of tier, without saying. Micro level is specific to you and therefore, while regrettable, is no big deal, which doesn't feel like the right response when a rising trend could portend something worse or larger or more systemic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think hate crimes is a a great example of this. Um, And so... One of the complexities related to hate crimes is that is how, how do you enforce, you know, the law when somebody just walks by and slaps you and keeps walking, right? Like what, what does that become, you know, or somebody walks by and, and calls somebody a bad name? Like, is that, do you, when you call that a hate crime, do you then persecute that? How do you find that person? Right? Like, like, is you know, it's a busy city street and someone yells something and keeps walking. And there is a lot of complexity around that. And what we ended up doing with a lot of hate crime kind of like, legislation is a lot of it comes down to these really more intense experiences you know like kids who are literally beat up for being gay um, you know stuff like that where you can actually say there was a measure of distress to this person that is so extreme that these people need to be held accountable for this I want to be clear that I'm not trying to be dismissive when I talk about it being micro the the, the, the word micro just sounds like not a big deal right it's micro um, but it really just means a unit of analysis right that the unit of analysis is at the individual level, like microeconomics versus macroeconomics, right? I don't want to say that it's, you know, something to be dismissed. But I think the thing about the macro-micro relationship, if you skip over the MISO, which is where the MISO is actually where a lot of our continued racism becomes complex because people can say, oh, we don't believe that stuff anymore, right? Like we had this with the 1619 Project, right? People say, no, we're post-racist. We had Barack Obama as a president. You know, we moved past all of that but we still have very racist policies in place. So that macro to miso to micro still exists. In anti-Semitism. I think we have a clearer loop from macro to micro, right? People believe a lot of things about Jews and they'll go and just hurt somebody who's Jewish because they believe those things. Um, or they've had a one-on-one interaction with someone who's Jewish and they decided all people who are Jewish are terrible because I had that interaction and now I want to engage in this way. That's where I think you can actually educate people. Like you can use, tools like education to deal with discrimination when it's in that clear loop. You can't use tools like education to just dis- to resolve discrimination that's at the MISA level because those that requires actual policy changes um, and it requires unpacking the entire system to understand where the gaps are. But I think education is a way to resolve some of, a lot of this. I also think that how do I want to put this? Again, not supporting people who are pushing those ideas. You know, recognizing the threats at the macro level before they come to the micro level, I think is more significant. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that somebody who just dismisses people who are, openly hating Jews is somebody who's going to encourage micro-level anti-Semitism down the line. Having lived in Pittsburgh, um, and I was really impacted by the massacre in Pittsburgh, and that was clearly tied to a lot of the rhetoric around this caravan coming, immigrants. It was, I mean, it was an attack on the Russian Immigrant Aid Society, right? It was an attack on people who support immigrants. And so, um, You know, I think that understanding the micro to the macro to micro loop is important. But I also think that when it comes to micro level anti-Semitism, again, without reducing how personally traumatic it is, we also need to understand that we broadly, I think, take for granted how safe we are in this country and not every other group is as safe as we are. And having a singular experience that makes us feel uncomfortable or unsafe is not necessarily a hate crime. If I'm walking down the street and someone yells, you know, dirty Jew, I'm like, okay, good job. It's to you too, right? And I can just move on. I don't need to then tweet about it. I don't need to then ask my city council person to write legislation that says this isn't allowed to happen, right? I can just move on. But we've, we're have we so embedded in the system where we believe that we have a right to wholesale whiteness, um, to be, to exist in every space without any discrimination, without anybody ever coming up against us, without anybody ever questioning anything we do. We believe that we deserve to exist in that space, and every single time we have any experiences, we refer to it as anti-Semitism. When it might just be some asshole being an asshole, right? Like it's that, that happens. That is real life for pretty much every group outside of very wealthy white male landowners, right? (laughs) Like they're the only ones who don't get called assholes or if they do, they really do like call the cops on you. And so, you know, like we have this level of entitlement in this country that just, I don't know, maybe we have to kind of move past that, right? And just keep hustling and just keep going because that's, that really is... Like our lives. I don't, you know, I just, I don't know if I'm saying it right. <laughs> cause I don't want to tell people just move on and get over it if somebody is coming and attacking you. Um, but I think that there are, again, even in that micro level, there are experiences that are just, okay, somebody was obnoxious to me. Somebody was an asshole to me. Somebody shoved me because I were, cause I wore a keeper. Like, okay, yeah. Sucks. Like, move on. You know, somebody called me bossy because I'm a woman and I had something to say. You know, like, so sexism is every single day experience, right? Anti Semitism is an every single day experience. These are just common experiences for us. And I think that it's a level of entitlement that we have that we sort of think that that should never happen. And if it happens, the whole world is like falling apart.
1: I also think, I mean, first of all, brava to everything you said. (laughs) I, I, totally agree. I think that like, I would like as a community for us to build up a little bit more resilience around this and a little bit more of a sense of like, we don't need to feel like Auschwitz is just around the corner every time somebody gets, you know, shoved for wearing a kippa. which doesn't mean that like getting shoved for wearing a kippa is fine. It's not fine. But like there, there are, there's like a, a very, very big gap between that happening and what I think a lot of people worry about when they talk about anti-Semitism. And I think like I just I wish there was a little bit more of a like reality check of like it's not okay when it happens, but it also is not the same as what people sometimes imagine. The other piece of this I think is really interesting is like my sense and I I don't know how this would, uh, my sense is that, like, most of the anti Semitism that, like, the acts of anti Semitism on the micro level that we're seeing are, like, mostly experienced by Haredi Jews. And a lot of the people that I see freaking out about anti Semitism today are not people who are typically closely aligned with the Haredi community. And I don't even think that they are in this way, you know, like they're not like standing guard in Haredi communities to keep Haredi families safe. They're just like freaking out on Facebook about anti-Semitism, And there's something about it that feels really disingenuous to me. Like, I think it is terrible that anybody is like getting beat up for being Jewish or is having to deal with like <clears throat> being yelled, you know, having slurs yelled at them like, that is not okay. I also, like, I think that there's, there's just, like, a lot more mixed up in that. Like, I think a lot of the time, the, like, clarity communities are living inside other, like, neighborhood communities, where, like, there's a lot of tension in that community, because of, like, all kinds of political things that are going on, and, like, that doesn't excuse, obviously, what's happening, but, like, there's a lot of other dynamics at play. It's not just like the same as anti-Semitism because, you know, it's not, it's not like elders of Zion anti-Semitism. It's, it's, it's like a housing policy anti-Semitism. And those are, those are different. But it's like a housing policy that, or that Haredi Jews
2: supported in order to engage in a system of oppression. And then they're being like, you know, wholesale, like punched in the street. Right. And that's where, again, it's like that miso level, right? When you're there and that's, that's a part of the complexity here too. Exactly. You have so many people living in neighborhoods full of tension, especially related to housing and real estate. And a lot of people who are openly dressed a certain way who are on the wrong side of that. Like I'm, I will say that openly. I've said it a million times. They are on the wrong side of these housing policy issues. And then they're, and they're embedding themselves within the MISO system in order to engage in oppression. And then they're experiencing micro-level anti-Semitism and screaming about it like as if there's like, you know, that's the biggest oppression that's going on. Um, meanwhile, I'm like, you're advocating for, you know, eviction policies, right? So it's a very, <laughs> it's a very complex dynamic, 100%. And,
0: and to your point about... Wait, I feel like we do need to say there are Haredi people who experience anti-Semitism that don't live in New York City. Of I mean, I think that it is it is important, I think, to to recognize, just because I feel, I don't know, responsible to channel a fair number of my extended family here, that like You can live in the suburbs and everybody around you, Jewish or not, can have a massively overbuilt house and you can experience anti-Semitism because you telegraph, you telegraph your religiosity in that way. Or you can, your community can try and expand into a different suburban neighborhood and the entire place goes batshit over your Eruv. Because it means that the character of their neighborhood will change, which is frankly something that people say all the time about other visible minority groups. I think it's important to not I I, I think that we're trending in the direction. I think there's a, a line here between understanding the complexity of context and and doing something that sort of creates excuses. And I want to make sure that we're on the right side of that line.
2: Yeah. And I think, again, to the space, time, social elements, right? So absolutely, tons of of anti-Semitism happens outside of New York. But, But to Tamar's point, a lot of it is around tense issues, right? So like NIMBY is a constant issue everywhere, not in my backyard, right? Every single time there's any development anywhere, a lot of established homeowners come out and say, we don't want this. We don't want the character of our neighborhood to change, right? Housing policy is huge. So a lot of this is actually spatial in nature. It has to do with urban conflict. And, and that's a constant issue. And it, and it's gotten even worse as housing is worse, right? And, I mean, again, that time variable, right? So housing has gotten more um, complex in the last several decades. There are ma- major housing shortages. There are, um, you know, economics have gotten more complex, right? The massive gaps between the haves and have-nots. So we have a lot more heated complexity going on. And a lot of, to the point about hurry, a lot of what happens in the Jewish community is that there aren't as many, in other groups, there aren't as many visible forms of alignment with a small specific group. So like if someone is if someone is black, um, they can experience and, and they can experience racism for being black, but they're not going to necessarily be immediately coded into a sub black group. Whereas with Haredim, they're immediately coded into a sub Jewish group um, in which there's been a lot of heated debate again around urban conflict and not just in New York. It happens in New Jersey. It happens in L.A., right? There's a lot of heated debate around urban conflict with a lot of Jews who are clearly physically, you know, look a certain way. And so there's a lot of transference there of anger towards any other Jew who looks like that. Absolutely not acceptable obviously, right? Absolutely not okay. Um, but but it is, it, these are broader, more tense issues. And one of the frustrations I have is when we as Jews stop at that line of, oh, it's because we're Jewish or, oh, it's because we're coded as Haredi, because there's a lot more going on there. And I think what we find in having that um, kind of support from folks who aren't aligned with the Haredi community is that it's actually a like tension around identity. So urban transformations are all about identity transformations, right? They're all about creating your sense of self through how you exist materially, spatially, you know, socially in your neighborhood. Um, People identify more and more with, you know, themselves as being from this space or engaging in this activity and it's identity formation. And we have tensions in identity formation Um, and we have tensions in marginalized groups fighting over identity formation and who should get attention and who should get the policies and who should get the of the media Um, because space and time in the internet age is so like contracted, um, right? So immediate, um, our identity formation has to happen immediately. So if you're Jewish and that's an identity that formation that you want to project um, immediately, something Jewish happens and you're speaking out against it, right? Or, or, or for it, you know, whatever it is, you're an anti-Semitic attack happens and immediately you're speaking out for it. But because that space, time and social elements are so contracted, you yourself, are not actually engaged with that community in any physical way over any real period of time or even socially. You don't know anybody from that community at all. But you need to immediately present your identity. And I think that's one of the issues that we all see on social media is that there's this immediacy of presenting an identity and presenting a presenting an opinion and making something out like as if it is now the biggest thing for you. And it might be the biggest thing for you in this exact moment of time, in the specific space you're in. But that doesn't make it the largest issue in the broader context.
1: This has been such a great and rich conversation. And I think really gave me a lot of food for thought. I think we have, this is just going to continue being something that's coming up. It's a cliche to say more and more, but it is coming up more and more. Um, And I I personally find the um, micro miso and macro framing to be super helpful in how I think about this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. For our
3: second segment, We are recording in the summer. We're about to have the longest Shabbat. Yes, we know all Shabbatot are the same length, but this is the one that goes the latest on Saturday. And we thought it might be fun to explore our favorite activities for these long Shabbatot. What makes a hot Shabbat bearable and or hopefully fun? And what's your favorite way to approach Shabbat dinner when Shabbat doesn't officially start until after eight o'clock? So I am curious to hear your two thoughts on this, especially I want to like ask maybe if you could talk about your approach before kids and your approach now that you have little ones that are on a more predictable schedule.
1: I will say that like everything, my my like Shabbat practice was really thrown for a loop by COVID. Um, And so like we just like in the past, month and a half, like started having um in-person davening on Shabbat and it's still not not every Shabbat. Um and so and it's been super weird to go back to Shuel. I'm like, how did I used to do this every single week in my ideal framing of a world where I'm not like trying to figure out how to like deal with the pandemic in addition to an extra long Shabbat. It's like sleep until I wake up on Saturday, no alarm, like just sleep, get up have a leisurely breakfast i usually eat cake for breakfast on shabbat Cake mm. cake leftover from friday night dinner so i usually have coffee and cake for breakfast and
3: then go to shul and are we ma- are we making it to shul at start time no are we getting there for torah reading <laughs> like so when are we getting sweet to shul that you think <laughs> that i would ever be at shul for when it starts
1: um i mean Sometimes I have to be, but it's rough. <laughs> I uh, uh, I am famous for saying Mustafa is the new Shachari. Um, <laughs> If I'm not reading Torah, then I will typically roll in sometime during the Torah reading. And if I am reading Torah, then like I will try and be there before Shema. But for Shachri, but you know, sometimes that doesn't work out as planned. I love having people over for Shabbat lunch. There's not that much of a culture of it in my community, which is kind of a bummer. And so, and like our shul in the time when kiddish was a thing at shul would often have like a pretty substantial kiddish. It was unfortunate for me. It wasn't like my kind of thing, but there would be a substantial kiddish who come home. And my like ideal situation is we all then like eat something more because usually like whatever it was like kiddish wasn't quite enough and then nap for like two to three hours, which is like amazing. Amazing. And um, then wake up and go to the playground and like going to the playground on Shabbat is like one of the highlights of my week because it's like my kids or kids are there playing and like, I am there and all my friends and I are hanging out. Like it's like really the like social scene of my life is like at the playground on Shabbat and like we bring a lot of snacks and we like hang out and like we can easily be at the playground for four hours um, on Shabbat. And then we will like start to come home late ish in the, in the day, like seven this, this week, I think we came home at eight. Um, but then there was still an hour and 15 minutes of Shabbat. Like it was, there was a while, um, and like eat a little bit. Like we sometimes put my younger daughter to sleep before Shabbat ends, um, on these late Shabbatot because it's like, especially if she's been out playing in the sun for four and a half hours, like she's fried. Um, and she is easy to put to sleep so that's like my my ideal situation I will say that like my I have had during the during the pandemic we started doing something where like one of a bagel place near us you could pre-order bagels so and pick them up on Shabbat so I would go I would like there was no shul because of the pandemic so I would have pre-ordered bagels and I would go pick them up. And then we would sit on our stoop and we would invite friends over to like, and we had like a folding table that we put out and we would have like Shabbat brunch with our friends basically. And it was like, so lovely. And like, I mean, obviously it was super weird that we were doing it like on the street, but but, like, you know, we got, got used to doing a lot of weird things during the pandemic. So, um, and I do like, I miss that like I wish that I could do that and also go to shul which I cannot. Um but I really like that and I will say another one of like the best parts of playground Shabbat is like debriefing shul and like mm. talking about the drash and like if anything weird happens at kiddush or like all, I don't know I just love <laughs> that it's like there's always like a debrief there's like a debrief of the week and also like a debrief of like what we all just experienced Um And yeah, I, that's, that's like how I have made, make it through the Shabbat. But that is like a big improvement for me over Shabbatot when I was like single or just didn't have kids. Like I would find those long Shabbatot super boring at a certain point. It would be like, I just took a three and a half hour nap and there's three and a half more hours of Shabbat. Like what? if you haven't like made a plan to meet up with someone, then you might not see anyone else. And it's like, wow, there's so many more hours of not doing anything. And like, I think that's part of why I love the playground scene is because it's like, I know if I go there, like I'm going to see somebody I know and hang out. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm having a hard time teasing apart how much of the shifts in this are pandemic related versus kid related, because I entered the pandemic with a just barely one year old and now, you know, it's been, it's been that long, you know, so, uh, the schedule that we have and how flexible she is and how often she naps and all these things are very different before the pandemic to now. And at the same time, how that interacts with having shul and not having shul and Having guests and not having guests also. So it's a little hard for me to tease this apart. I think that, first of all, since moving to Toronto, summer Shabbatot are weird, man, because like we are at the west end of the Eastern time zone, which means last week Shabbat ended at 9 50 PM. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like it's just I it's been so odd. And weirdly, we have not been making early Shabbos. So like growing up, you know, my parents, my household would always in the summer make early Shabbos. My father would go to the early minion. He would still be at Shul at 645 on a Shabbos in July. And we would, you know, light candles early and have, you know, dinner at normal person dinner time. And now as adults with full-time jobs and a toddler were like score we don't have to like rush home and deal with all that like we can We can finish our workday, still have time to cook, do normal bedtime, and it is not Shabbos yet at 840. It's like, actually, that's working out pretty well. So while conceptually, it's weird to me to sit down to Shabbos dinner at nine o'clock, that is in fact what we're doing right now because it makes Friday so much less stressful. Um, It does mean that for a significant stretch of the year now, my daughter experiences neither Friday night kiddish, nor Saturday night Havdalah, because both of them are after her bedtime. So... I, you know, it's sort of a funny experience. Um, It's like, it's like her soul is experiencing perpetual Shabbos, guys. It's never (laughs) over.
1: Oh my gosh, she's so prom.
0: (laughs) One thing about it being summer, because, okay, so another quirk of being up in Toronto is that vaccine distribution for COVID has been uh, significantly lagged compared to what people are experiencing in the United States. And uh, we're still in a significant degree of, of, uh, Constraint. Um, we haven't. It's not like we've hit full reopening up here as we record this. Um, in fact, it is only last week that our shul, at this stage of the pandemic, has been able to go up from ten people per service total to fifteen percent of building capacity, which is a significant jump given the size of my building. But uh, it. Just the concept of potentially going back to shul, which I was doing much earlier in the pandemic, but uh, when things were less intense here, but it's we're now starting to reconsider the concept of going back to shul. And I'm now thinking, wow, how is that going to affect the way my toddler thinks about Shabbos, which right now is my parents are both available to take me to the park first thing in the morning? (laughs) She literally wakes up on Saturday morning and goes, is it family time? Oh. <laughs> Which is lovely and wonderful. And also if for any reason it is not family time, makes me feel terrible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so anyway, but because it is it summer like now. it's
1: so weird that like, like could you have ever imagined that that would be your child's association with Shabbat? <laughs> like, Which is just, great. I get, yeah, you know, no, it's not, it's good, but it is also just like, what a weird year and a half it has been. That <laughs> like, like basic things about our children's Jewish lives are not what we expected. I think that
0: one thing that is a struggle um, in pandemic Shabbos is conveying a sense of uh, Shabbos as anything other than all the stuff we can't do. Yes. Because there isn't sort of an affirmative ritual experience making up very much of her day. And so um, that's something where I think the family time is kind of rushed in to fill the void as as an affirmative Shabbos thing. But other than that, I would say summer Shabbos stuff. First of all, uh, we have moved during this time from an apartment to a house that has outdoor space in the back. The ability to host an outdoor lunch over the Mm -hmm. last several weeks, really over the last month, we have been able to host a Shabbos lunch on our back porch in a way that wasn't possible for the entirety of COVID. That's been a very big deal and is something, frankly, that I think we'll probably keep up post-COVID. I mean, there's no reason we all must eat inside. Um, (laughs) And the other thing is just given how late Shabbos ends, uh, to really to an extreme here, um, that my husband and I in shifts have started taking post bedtime walks. Like mm. once, a uh, once we're no longer doing any active parenting, you know, one of us will stay home and I can go for a walk on Saturday evening for a solid hour, come home, and then he can go for a walk for an hour. And Shabbos is still just barely ending. <laughs> so that just taking advantage of the evening in a way that isn't because it's still Shabbos, like, Hey, no screens. Right. And no, uh, sort of atmospheric, we should be preparing for tomorrow. So that I think is the nicer part of it is that, you know, I can, I can take a walk from seven 30 to eight 30 in a way that feels very calm and, uh, you know, just being in my surroundings and very, uh, I am I I am terrible at mindfulness in the grand scheme of things. I feel like this is my best shot at it.
3: Mm, I like that family time and Zahava's best shot at mindfulness. <laughs> How about you, Mimi? I am. We we do early Shabbat dinner, like before my son goes to bed. And, you know, I I don't feel bound by a lot of the time boundedness of Shabbat. So we'll even do Havdalah like right before bed on Saturday if it's might be 730. And if we're just like looking for something nice to do, light the candles and smell the spices and, you know, sing songs. So I think that for me, I think similarly to Yuzahava, like, I'm at a different stage in my toddler's life and his need for schedule. Um, The pandemic is meaning that things are reopening, but also I've moved geographically a lot further from the minion that I used to be a part of. And I'm still waiting for the shul that I'm now close to to reopen, but I haven't made friends yet with those people who go to that shul. So, yeah, and I don't know, like, Thursday night, I went to help my minion set up the tent and I just I for outdoor davening. And I realized, like, it's going to be like an hour and a half walk to get there on Saturday. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that in a heat wave with a two year old. Um, so I'm still really figuring it out. I will say the things that I've really enjoyed have been. You know, just sort of like basic summertime things, but letting them feel like Shabbat. So I want to endorse. This is not our our technical endorsement, but Whole Foods has some really good Concord Grape ice pops. And my son, Ruben, is really into kiddish. And so we had Concord Grape ice pops for um, dessert. Uh, friday night which was great um and just i think generally Zahav- uh, tomorrow like you mentioned park meetups big part of my weekend life for me it's either saturday or sunday is a park meetup time yeah and I'm, I'm still really struggling with like what does shabbat look like in my new neighborhood and i think um that's that's the biggest thing for me right now not the time
1: like deciding whether or not to bring in shabbos early is such a like Interesting question because it's like really about Am I trying to create this environment and I'm willing to do like the stuff that Sahaba's talking about, like stress myself out more, do more prep before, you know, maybe on Thursday night or whatever, in order to have like Friday night dinner be at like a normal dinner time and have it be this thing that is like a little bit closer to the experience I have during most of the rest of the year? Or is it it's really about like whenever candle lighting is like, that's when this I'm going to like guarantee to do this thing. And it's funny how like when you have kids, it's also like a lot about like how flexible are you about your kid's bedtime? Like do your kids melt down at a certain time or not really, you know, like those things are big factors. Like we just start Shabbat whenever Shabbat actually starts typically. And like, Our kids just will just eat. I mean, like sometimes they do a lot of snacking before dinner. But like, I am not a kind of person who's going to be like ready to start Shabbat two hours early. Like unless something weird happened, like that's just not the reality of my life. And like, I assume that I would have figured something out if I had kids who like could not absolutely could not handle Having dinner at eight o'clock or whatever, but I don't. My kids are like, whatever, (laughs) if there's cake at the end, it's all good. (laughs) Um, And so, but I think that that has a huge impact on, like, you know, how you frame Shabbat in your head. And similarly, on Saturday, it's like, I think it is more intense, especially in this pandemic when it's like there's so many hours of time to fill. And it's a pandemic and it's Shabbat. So there's a lot of stuff that like normally we would do, which we do not do. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like a more complex ask and something that like families are kind of negotiating in, in different ways that I find to be like super interesting. And and I don't know, I actually think it mostly tells you like how much time do people have to prepare for Shabbat earlier in the week slash like how flexible is their work schedule? And like how flexible are their kids' bedtime schedules if they have kids? (laughs) Like that to me is what I think it actually comes down to. But like those two things end up having like a huge impact on like what your ritual of Shabbat looks like. You know, what's funny is that
0: (laughs) traditional like liturgy kind of has an answer to this question. And that answer is Pirkei Avot, (laughs) meaning what's funny about the, like we're, we're talking about the, um, sort of communal, social and culinary, I guess, experience (laughs) of Shabbat. Um, but the, the sort of traditionally cited reason in large part for why during the summer months does your, you know, does your sitter have Pirkei Avot, the section of, mm. of Mishnah that has, uh, the, the sort of, uh, ethics of the fathers is the usual translation, but just sort of, um, ethical pronouncements and, and, um, you know, social norms and that kind of thing showing up in a legal text. Why, why do we study a chapter of that traditionally speaking as part of the liturgy, um, between the afternoon and evening services, on summer Shabbat out, it's like, well, cause it's a really long afternoon. Clearly you're going to need a structured thing to study and share with your community, which I've personally never really gone for. Like I've never been a big Pirkei Avot person, but it is interesting. Like when we are all talking about sort of family structuring and social structuring, and I think I have a real difficult time figuring out how to create uh, a spiritual and Shabbos content structure to fill time. I mean, even in, you know, normal world, when I'm going to shul in the morning and things like that, I I'm still not like, there's still these very lengthy hours of afternoon time in the summer. And I don't think I do a particularly intentional job of filling them with, Jewish content structure. Mm -hmm. And there will be a point at like 8 p.m. where I'm like, oh, I really need to daven mincha, you know, and I'll get up and I'll say the afternoon service. And because I'm almost always by myself and not in shul to do that, it takes me a total of like seven minutes. But I, other than that, I'm not trying to structure my day around religious content in that way. Um, which I'm putting out there a little bit as like a, you know, acknowledging a failing, but I think it's interesting that the, um, that, that the traditional answer to this is let's give you something to study and let's standardize it to make sure that this is something you can share with others in your community and have like a, a universal cycle to follow the same way we do with Torah reading. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know if that's something that either of you has ever taken advantage of on a, on a regular basis, but I do think it's funny that that exists.
1: I've never done it, but I I do like, I think that's that kind of like empty time as part of like what I think is like meaningful to me about Shabbat. You know, it's like at no other time in my week would I have like a four hour period where it's like, Just hanging out, no real plan. Like, that's not a thing in my life. It just would be great, but it doesn't have, not. It is just like really. I enjoy studying pure Keavot, and like, I don't think it would be bad for my life to have it, but like, I specifically do not want a Shabbat afternoon Chabrita because, like, I, to me, like that kind of like big open space of time where I know I'm gonna be spending time with my family and my friends, that is much more meaningful than like, you know, pouring over pure keavot, even though I do find like looking up pure keavot meaningful, it's just not the same. I think we should end by talking about one of our favorite summer Shabbat dishes to cook or eat. Oh, I actually have
0: an answer to this because I broke this out as my summer recipe a couple weeks ago for the first time this season. So the thing that I always struggle with the most when menu planning is the appetizer um, in general, what because uh, and I, I may have said this previously on an episode, but like in my head, the thing that distinguishes a Shabbos meal from a meal at any other time is courses, like mm-hmm. if you sit down and eat it all at the same time, it is not a Shabbos meal in my head. Like a Shabbos meal should have an appetizer, a main dish and a dessert. Um, and maybe if you're not having company, you can forego the dessert. Maybe, Um what? <laughs>
1: I mean, you can forego preparing
0: a formal dessert maybe and like go graze in the snack. Why would drawer. you
1: not? Why would you not? For, sorry, there's a pie here. Why would you not forego the appetizer?
0: <laughs> to <laughs> the me, dessert. like the appetizer is the more distinguishing factor for a Shabbos meal because I never make an appetizer for right. for any other time that isn't a significant event. So, Summer appetizer. I have a great recipe that offhand I cannot remember the original source of, but I will find it and link to it in our show notes for mango gazpacho. This is a uh, there's no tomatoes involved. It just means cold soup derived from mango. So the broth, quote unquote, is pureed mango with some orange juice and some olive oil and some lime juice mixed in. The other contents are chopped up. It's basically an Israeli salad, right? There's like chopped up (laughs) pepper, onion, and parsley uh chopped up in a um in this mango broth. And especially if you're eating outside on the porch in the hot sun, it is a great refreshing. It's like what you want from mango sorbet at the end of the meal, except mm. a little bit savory and at the beginning.
3: That sounds amazing. That does sound amazing. Yeah, Zahava my or Tamar, my my thought was also gazpacho. There's um, Mark Bittman has a cookbook called The Kitchen Matrix, um, and one I love it in part because it's just laid out really beautifully, and he has a whole spread with these beautiful photos of different gazpachos, and pretty much during the summer, the immersion blender will come out, and I'll cook my way through, or judge my way through all of those <laughs> gazpachos.
1: Yes, I also love gazpacho. Um, I was going to say salmon niçois salad or like uh, any kind of niçois salad but like I love we 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 eat a lot of salmon in my family and so a soa salad made with salmon instead of tuna is like a a mainstay and what's nice about it is like you cook all the components of it separately and then you can kind of have everybody like make their own salad with whatever ratio of like green beans to potatoes to olives or whatever they want and if there's somebody who like hates olives like you haven't contaminated it. Like everybody can, can make their own because there's like a a lot of different things in your typical nice Like there will be enough for everybody to like figure out some component of like, you know, some combination of things that they like. So I I recommend, and it's great cold. Like you don't need to do, you have to cook the components ahead of time, but nothing needs to be heated up. I love cake as I've already mentioned twice on this (laughs) very episode, (laughs) but, uh, ice cream, and like popsicles on Shabbat afternoon are like such a delight as well. So
3: Popsicles
0: are great. They I love them. Are. Me too. One thing actually is that um so I grew up waiting after meat uh into the sixth hour before eating dairy. So five hours and five minutes was my family practice. Eventually, I essentially married into a three hour custom, nice. which is super clutch. Uh, there's a longer story <laughs> there. I'll tell another time. But anyway, I we now have a three hour custom. And one thing about a longer Shabbos is that there's a huge stretch of dairy eligible time mm-hmm. after a <laughs> meat <I> lunch, <laughs> which um, just tomorrow's so afternoon important. ice cream. Uh, revolution. I just like that used to not be a thing, especially when I was in college, I studied abroad in Amsterdam and the prevailing Dutch practice is one hour. And there's something like very strange. If you did not grow up with this practice about like going to somebody's house, having a meat Shabbos lunch, just hanging out, play half a board game and then having ice cream (laughs) is like very odd. But now I feel like at least on a longer Shabbos with a three hour wait time, I can I can get a a bit of that. That
1: is awesome. I don't. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm never flashek. But um, I definitely feel like the reason I'm a vegetarian is because I never want to be flashek. Because I always want to be able to eat ice cream <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or a dairy dessert. So uh, I definitely understand the appeal of like a Shabbat that's long enough that you can actually go back to your ice cream or whatever's. Very important. We hope that your summer Shabbatot are relaxing and fun and not stifling and boring. And maybe we gave you some ideas of ways to occupy the time. Um these long shabbatots. But we're also like about to come to there's start they're gonna start getting getting shorter, which is it's funny to me that it feels like early in the year. I mean, I know obviously it's the same time every Year, but I, in my head, I would expect the longest Shabbat to be like in August, mm-hmm. and it's weird to me that it's actually in June. All right, I think we are ready for our endorsements. Sahava, what do you have to endorse?
0: So I feel like we we really got revved up for endorsements with our food. Uh, recommendations, but, um, so I'll endorse a podcast episode that I listened to today. Um, so the Shalom Hartman Institute puts out a podcast, uh, called identity crisis, uh, spelled identity slash crisis, um, which is actually coincidentally uh, produced by our original executive producer, David C. Kalman. But I am not a regular listener to this podcast. And a friend flagged for me that there is an episode recently called The Canadian Jewish Difference. um, And it is a discussion between Huda Kurtzer of the Hartman Institute and David Kaufman, who's a professor at York University in Toronto, um, to talk about what makes Canadian Jewry distinct from American Jewry, um, you know, Hartman bills itself in large part as a, there's a North American branch of Hartman versus the Israeli branch, but North American in many institutions means ninety seven and a half percent American. Um, and so just to explore the Canadian side of that equation a little bit. And to me, this just scratched the surface though. They were dis- discussing a book that I should probably now go read. Um, but discussions a little bit about things that shape the distinctive nature of the Canadian Jewish community, things that I've wondered about, like, um, why does it feel like non-observant Canadian Jews on average are so much more traditional than non-observant American Jews? Why is the rate of day school enrollment so high to the point that the area that I'm in can sustain two pluralistic day schools and an ideologically secular labor Zionist, uh, Jewish school, a, an explicitly reformed Jewish school, in addition to Orthodox institutions, like just having the enrollment to sustain that variety is kind of shocking to somebody who comes from the U S um, the, the ostensibly Jewish Mecca of, of, uh, the New York area. And yet, um, or, um, why is the Canadian Jewish community on average, uh, more strongly Zionist than the American Jewish community? And hearing about how um, the timing of immigration uh, of Jews to Canada matters from where the percentage of Holocaust survivor descendants in the community versus in the United States, um, also the context in which the larger country is already an explicitly binational, bilingual, uh, bicultural kind of place um, and what that means for Jews' sense of uh, ability to identify as having somewhat binational national interests. Um, all of those things were really interesting to me and uh, made me want to explore this topic more. So um, the, uh, this episode of Identity Crisis, uh, episode number 59, is called The Canadian Jewish Difference.
3: Cool.
1: Awesome. Uh, Mimi, what about you? What do you have to endorse this month?
3: I am also endorsing um, an episode of a podcast. Um, this was flagged for me by my friend Aaron Taylor, who is a voracious podcast consumer and a fan of Talking and Shull. Um So the podcast is called Ear Hustle. It's about um, life inside of prisons and people returning from prison. Um, and this is episode 56. It's about an Israeli owned bakery in San Francisco called Frana Bakery. Um, and it just happened that this bakery owner sort of started hiring a lot of people um, recently returning home from prison and just really about like What makes this bakery special and what it means to be an employer for people coming out of prison. Um, And I one of the things that I really loved about it, the owner is a religious Israeli and he talks just very like casually and lovingly about the ways in which his Jewish upbringing um, support and his Jewish beliefs supported his choice to give people this chance and to really welcome them into his family. It's a beautiful episode of an amazing podcast. So highly recommend the episodes called life or bakery on the ear hustle podcast. And then I also, I just laughed probably too hard at a t-shirt that I, um, a Jewish meme aggregator posted. It's a t-shirt that says, I went to Helm and all I got was this lousy pair of pants. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really good. <laughs> and I just, it just made me so happy. Oh, that's so good. I will share a link to the Helm t-shirt. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic.
1: My endorsement is for a book called everybody an honest and open look at sex from every angle. Um, it's edited by Julia Rothman and Shana Feinberg and um, this is like I loved reading this book. It is just like hundreds of short vignettes of people talking about their sex lives and it's like funny and sad and interesting and like learned about all kinds of things I didn't know about. Um, but there's some there's a few longer essays. Um, and one of them is by Alna Baker, who is um, an editor at uh, This American Life. And she um, grew up a religious Mormon. She also has a book about um, kind of leaving the Mormon church. And she has an essay, I believe it's called Jesus Dirt. And it's about how like when she decided to leave like religious Mormon life, she decided that she was going to have like a rum springer, like a year off from being a religious Mormon. And then she's going to go back to being a Mormon, which is like, as she says in the essay, not a thing (laughs) that Mormons do, but she decided that she was going to do this. And um, one of the things that she wanted to do in this year was have sex. And, but she like, because she'd grown up religious Mormon was like having a little bit of trouble closing the deal. And one of her friends um, was like, you know, I know this guy who grew up a orthodox, like ultra orthodox, that's their words. And so, um, and left that. And I think you might get along with him and like, he might be able to like coach you on this basically. And the essay is about what ended up being her like date and sexual experience with this guy. And it is like hilarious and super cringy. And also like, I think in a way, very deep about like how like religion and sex can really get deep into us in ways that are really hard to kind of deal with and process. Um, but I, I like love that essay. I read it um out loud to my partner and we <laughs> did like full body cringes and laughs together. So if either of those things sound good to you. Um but even if that doesn't sound good to you, honestly, this book is like so great. And it's like a big thick book, um, but everything in it is like basically two paragraphs long. So you can just kind of rifle through it um and find tons of nuggets. So highly recommend that. That sounds great. It is really good. I want everybody to get it. Um, and also like I got it. I found it by accident at the library. So like I haven't seen anybody talk about it. So I don't and I think it just came out this uh, year. for
0: the days of finding things by accident at the library.
1: I know. Well that it's not because I was like browsing at the library, it's because there's another book that is a book about like bodies and sex and gender and stuff for kids called the Everybody Book. And my kid really likes it and um so i was like looking for that and then i found this and i was like oh this also looks good Thank you so much um, for listening and thanks to Daniel Zana for editing our show. If you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast and it would be great to let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. We're always looking for ideas of what to talk about. Um, You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co and then choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. And that's a really great way to make sure that um, you support our show and we can keep coming back to you every month with new episodes. Mimi, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you both. I hope you all have great long Shabbat this coming week. (laughs) You too. (laughs) See you next month.